If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful, even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets 
talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham. And so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here together at First Christian Church. For guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. And I welcome everybody here in the West Auditorium as well, everybody online at Lovington and also in the East Auditorium. Take your Bible, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, admittedly, that what we just saw was a little bit longer than what we would normally do in terms of an introduction to a sermon. But we felt it would give you a pretty brief but concise understanding of a very, very difficult topic that we're taking on today. And so thanks to the Bible Project, people from Portland, Oregon, to um, give us the uh, go ahead and we could show that for you today. Difficult subject, strap in, get ready. We're going to do this in a few minutes and see if we can't figure out really a key understanding of Scripture. So to start, I want to tell you about a couple, um, 1842. Almost 200 years ago, middle of the 19th century, a colonel in the Dutch cavalry, a guy named Van Gorkum, he married a woman with a Dutch last name, Van Afferdam. And Van Gorkum married Van Afferdam. And um, it was like all marriages, a covenantal relationship. It was a promise made from one person to another. When people get married, they make promises to each other. One We call it the bond of matrimony, right? It's a covenant between two people. I promise you promise. And Van Gorkum and Van Afferdam made these promises to each other, and they were married for decades. And you'd you'd hope so when you see a young couple or an older couple standing and and making vows. You say, man, I hope that lasts. And it's kind of your thoughts and hopes for them. However, friends, the truth is the community around them didn't expect the marriage to survive. See, in Holland, in the Netherlands, in the middle of the 19th century, there was a form of segregation in play called pillarization. It's disappeared pretty much from Dutch culture now, but for more than than a century, it was part of what it meant to be Dutch. Pillarization was taken very seriously. It it was really two different groups within within the culture, and each group had their own schools, their own newspapers, even their, if they were going to get buried in a cemetery, they'd be buried in a portion of the cemetery that reflected their background. Now, you might say, well, how does that work? Because 
you know, Holland, mid-19th century, 1840s. This is northern Europe. It's not the case today, but in those days, wouldn't it be that pretty well everyone was of one race, that they were probably all white? What's the problem, if you will? Well, that was the case. The bride and groom were both white. But pillarization said they shouldn't be married. Can you think why? Van Gorkum was Protestant. Van Afferdam was Roman Catholic. And what they did what in getting married across that religious denominational line was taboo. But apart from that history, apart from the segregation, regardless of the, of the if you will, the community's ridicule, they, they had a long and productive marriage. Now, I'm, I'm going to weave their story this morning in and out of the scripture story that we're looking at, because I think it illustrates what we're, what we're examining today. What we are doing today is we're carrying on with our walk through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is liter literally a letter written to a bunch of Christians who were ostracized by their community some 30 to 35 years after Jesus' ministry. They are literally fearful for their lives because it was written during the days when you could die for being a Christian. Now, they are Jewish Christians by birth in the sense that they are Jewish and they've become Christians after, being, after you know, learning the story of Jesus. Christianity in those days, 30 years after Jesus' ministry, it wasn't a separate religion like it is today. It was more or less sort of an offshoot of Judaism. And so these Jewish Christians, they're celebrating all the Jewish feasts and holidays and religious rites. They go to the synagogue on Saturday. But then they were also Christians, so they would go to church on Sunday. And Hebrews, really this book explains how Christianity understood ancient practices of the Jewish nation. Or you can put it this way, that Christianity... Hebrews kind of gives us this understanding of Christianity through a Jewish lens or Judaism through a Christian lens. And so I need to tell you what we're looking at today can be tough stuff. And if you'd like to kind of follow up with it after the fact, you can get one of the study guides that will be coming out this afternoon via text. Text the word first to cater to 24587. You'll get that. We have more than 1,000 people getting that this weekend. So you could join in that. If you're not into the technical side and you still like to do it, a study guide is about 20 to 30 minutes long. There are paper copies available at the welcome desks. Okay, so as we look at this today, we're going to see this idea of this segregation, this separation that was supposed to be part of Dutch culture, how these guys, this, young, this couple, fought against that segregation and see how all that applies to Scripture. If you'll read with me Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. Now, in saying that's a new covenant, then that must mean there's an old covenant. So I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they didn't remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them. So there's a long story that the people of Israel in the ancient days, the people of Judah, they wandered away from God and so they broke the covenant. His hand of blessing was taken away from them. His hand of protection was removed from them because they broke the promise. But this covenant is one that I will establish with the people of Israel. Here's how it's going to go. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. No longer will they kind of point at their neighbor and say, hey, you should know the Lord. No, it'll be, it'll be different because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. 
I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, Jesus, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So, where's this going? Well, that passage of scripture we just read is actually a quote from the Old Testament. It's, um, it's the longest quote that we have in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And it, it's really, at this point in the book of Hebrews, it's the high point of the whole book. It's the apex of the book. It's the most significant part of Hebrews because what it does is it ties the old with the new. It ties the Torah and the wisdom literature and everything what we call the Old Testament to the, it, it says, okay, so that was how that used to go, but this is how Jewish Christians, these new Jewish, these new Christians of Jewish faith, this is how you should approach this understanding of covenant. So for us, we're looking in from the outside. I would suspect few of us are Jewish here today, but as Christians, we say this is how the two Testaments, how the Old and New Testament relate to one another. See, it could be, it could be argued very legitimately and very strongly that covenant, the idea of promises made or promises being broken, covenant is a key to understanding all of the Bible. You have an Old Testament covenant, you have a New Testament covenant. In both cases, it's about God knowing people. The Old Testament covenant is this, that God will know people and be engaged in the life of Israel through Israel's mutual agreement to obey God. God says, I'll watch over you as a nation, I'll bless you and protect you if you obey. In the New Testament, though, now God is engaged not only in the life of Israel, but in the life of anyone through a mutual agreement, this case not necessarily to obey, but to follow. So, I mean, obedience is there, but it's more so, will you live like Jesus lived? And so, we in our world, in our time, we don't fully get what's going on with this covenant business, unless you think about a marriage. In the ancient world, a covenant was an agreement of promises between two different parties, two different entities. It, it's a little bit different than a marriage in that we have people coming together in marriage these days as co-equals. But in a covenant in the ancient world, one party was more powerful than the other. And so the covenant of the Old Testament was between God, who was higher, and the people of Israel, who were lower. God, the more powerful, would provide blessings and protection over the nation. Israel, in response, would choose to obey God. And so how do they know how to obey? Well, among other things, they got some laws. God, I mean, they had got these stone tablets that say the Ten Commandments on them and other civic and religious laws. And all those laws were designed to bring the nation, if you will, into compliance with how God wanted the nation to, and the people to both obey and worship him. But there was a problem. The people, not God, the people kept breaking the covenant. And the only way that covenant could be restored involved blood. It was a blood agreement. When the people sinned, when the nation sinned, when they disobeyed, blood from an animal would be shed, would be spilled, would be poured. And that blood was to indicate remorse, was to indicate for a need for forgiveness. And the animal's death was obviously costly to the person who owned the animal, but obviously most costly to the animal. It was, very, it was, a, it was a gruesome, yeah, ugly scene, if you will, in that a living entity died to bring the broken relationship, the broken covenant, back to a starting point. Why 
such a costly experience? Well, because breaking the covenant was serious business. It was going to cost something. That's why it would appear to me that when we step into a marriage, it feels so serious because we're making these promises. We're making this covenant vow. Now, I've heard from people and chatted with, we have lots of people in our own congregation who have tragically experienced the breaking of that covenant. They've experienced the marriage falling apart and um, it feels like a death of a dream and death of hopes for the future. Divorce comes along and I'll tell you, friends, I've never seen a divorce occur where everybody's happy. Doesn't happen. There's always a setting of pain and struggle and tears and grief? Is it any wonder then that that Dutch couple in the 19th century, 150 years ago, they refused to break their promises to each other despite their communities, you know, the pillarization around them that despised the marriage of this Protestant and the Roman Catholic. You know, I wonder how they agreed to marry each other in the first place. What was their love like and how did that come along that allowed love to obviously win over the convention of the time, to, to win over pillarization. I've had their story in my files for a number of years and um, I've always thought, what did they promise to each other? What would have been included in their vows that everyone would have heard to realize, hey, this marriage really is a marriage of love? I've done a lot of weddings in my ministry and I've had all kinds of people ask diff- different things to be included in their vows and, Sometimes you go, okay, we can do that. And sometimes you go, no, we shouldn't do that. You know, some people say, just, just, we don't care what the vows are, just make them traditional. And I want to go, shouldn't you look and take a, take a gander at what you're going to be promising to each other? But nonetheless, um, I've come across some vows that kind of make me go, hmm, what's the story to that? For example, here's one vow. In the middle of the marriage vow, one partner said, I vow to take your hand when it's too dark. Oh, that's nice. And here's the second part of my vow that's out of the ordinary. I vow to take the dog out when it's too early. What? What? The dog's in the wedding now? How'd that happen? Or here's one. I vow to always let you have the last blueberry pancake. Now there's a story there, isn't there? There's a story there. I promise to love you as much as I love the Chicago Cubs. What? I'll love you in sickness and in health from this day forward until death do us part or you become a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Ooh, man. I'll love you even as we got skinny for the wedding and I'll love you more when we get fat afterwards. Marriage vows, what do they do? They help us set the boundaries of our love. They describe the hopes and the dreams of that couple. And breaking the marriage, the marriage covenant always brings struggle. In the Old Testament, there was a struggle any time the nation of Israel broke covenant with God. It always led to trouble. Let me give you two examples, okay? So to understand this, you need to think that the nation of Israel... 1,000 BC, large nation at that time, probably at least 2 million people. They've got all of the land of Israel that we know of today. Today, we call it, refer to them as Israelis. Back then, they're known as Israelites. The Israelites are, are um, 
divided into 12 different tribes, 12 different fam very large family groups. And 12, of the 12 tribes, you've got 10 that live in the north and two that live in the south, north of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem. And the group in the north, eventually, while the whole nation is known as Israel, also the north, northern group is known as Israel as compared to the southern group that's known as Judah. So sometimes when you say the name Israel, you're referring to all 12 tribes. Sometimes it's just the 10 in the north. So in 721 BC, uh, the tribes in the north, now known as, the, as the, the group of 10 tribes, Israel, they've wandered away from God. They've broken covenant with God and thus They've walked away from God's hand of protection and blessing. And the Assyrians, off to the east, grow in military power, and they come in and they literally wipe out the 10 tribes known as Israel. Those 10 tribes disappear from the historical record, not only within scripture, but the, the, the if you will, the non-scriptural history. It's, they're gone. We don't know what happened to them. I mean, in the last 30, 40 years, we've done some archeological research and we have some ideas, but for, they are dead, they are annihilated. That's the first example of what happens when, they broke co when covenant is broken. Second example, 140 years later, the group in the south known as Judah. Go back and look at your scripture again. Verse 8, do you see how it mentions both Israel and Judah? This is what's going on here. So 586 BC, 140 years after the people in the north disappear, the Assyrians have lost their military power. The Babylonians are getting their military power again off in the east. They come in and they take over the two tribes in the south, Judah. Why? Because Judah has also walked away from the protection of God. And as they've walked away from that protection, the Babylonians come in. But this time, instead of wiping out those two tribes, they take all their leaders, all their artisans, their skilled tradespeople, and their young people, and they force march them off to Babylon. And so you have just a decimated population left behind. The people who are Jewish today, we could say for the most part, are the descendants of those two tribes that were decimated in 586 BC. So what's going on here is that these people break covenant and when they break covenant with God, disaster follows. It always leads to struggle. And what you see throughout Scripture is this understanding that this is going to happen over and over and over again in a never-ending cycle throughout the Bible. Why? Because the people of Scripture are like you and me. People are people, and as Scripture states, we're prone to sin, human sin. And so what you have in the Old Testament is this never-ending cycle of new promises, new attitudes, followed by a break in those promises. And so then you've got problems come along, struggle comes along, and the people say, we want to be forgiven. So an animal is killed and blood is poured out because we're going to pay for this cost. We're going to do something costly to get forgiveness. And the cycle was never going to end. But then Jesus showed up. And read our passage of Scripture. It's going to be on the screens now in light of what happens when Jesus arrives. There are days coming, declares the Lord, I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. They didn't remain faithful to my covenant. But now here's a new covenant that's coming along. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. This is old versus new. 
And friends, while his name is not mentioned here, this is all about Jesus. Remember we said Hebrews 8 is the apex of the whole book. I also said it's a long quote from the Old Testament. Namely, this is from Jeremiah. This is written 600 years before Jesus ever showed up. So 600 years before Jesus showed up, Jeremiah prophesies and says there's a day coming when a new covenant is going to be put together. And these people here in Hebrews, Jesus comes 600 years after Jeremiah. This is now 35 to 70 years later. And they're reading, ah, it's all coming together. God is saying that the old covenant is going to be surpassed by a new covenant. And the Hebrews, the people reading the letter say, well, we remember that from the scriptures that are 600 years old. And now here it is in front of us. This time that instead of obedience coming from laws that are written on stone tablets, Moses going up to Mount Sinai, now this time the law will be in our hearts. In other words, it goes from, I'm going to worship God because I will do it obediently. God says worship and I worship. It wasn't quite like that, but that's how you could interpret it in some ways. To now, it's an internal intuitive decision that says, I will follow Jesus and coming out of that following of Jesus, I will live the way he would want me to live. So it's not so much an obedience, though, that's a fact part of it. More so, it's, an imi- it's a decision to mimic and live as Jesus would want us to live. It requires radical heart surgery. That's the way another contemporary of Jeremiah, 600 years again before Jesus says this is gonna, how it's going to go, he says, Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, long before Hebrews came along, long before Jesus came along, 600 years prior, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are saying, there's going to be a new way in which we relate to God. And in the past, blood was spilled out, but now we will follow Jesus willingly because of his sacrificial death, his blood being spilled, which is why it says later on in Hebrews and a couple chapters later, the law, the old covenant, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It's not the realities themselves. Why? Well, because the sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect sense. Never make perfect those, pardon me. Let me say that again. The same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you don't desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though, of course, they were offered in the past in accordance with the law. Then Jesus sets aside the first covenant to establish the second covenant. We've been made holy through the sacrifice of the, blood, of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's a one-time event. It doesn't have to happen year after year. Jesus' blood was spilled. A new covenant is put in place. A better covenant that was not dependent upon human priests. It's not dependent on an animal dying, but it's dependent upon the Son of God's sacrificial death. And ironically, his death makes us more willing to be obedient to the laws of the old covenant. Because why? Because the law is now written on our hearts. It becomes intuitive that we say, hey, this is the way to live. Following allows us, following Jesus leads us 
to obedience. And so what's a better response to this new covenant? A choice to follow. We have this obedience to allow heart surgery, turning hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. In other words, it's up to you, it's up to me as individuals. You choose, I choose. You choose to follow Jesus Christ, I choose to follow Jesus Christ. And we break the culture around us. The culture that says, well, this group can never be with that group. The culture that says people can't change. Our hearts become better, we change. We break the culture that says you really can't know God. Why? Because now we know God through Jesus Christ. So this idea of covenant is from the early days of Scripture all the way through to the end that God wants to be in a relationship with people and we choose to follow him. Jesus is the connecting bridge between us and God. A new covenant is established through his sacrificial blood and consequently, we get to act and live differently than the people around us. We push back from any sort of culture that says it's about me. Christians, one of our tasks, we obviously need to honor and glorify God, of course, but one of our ways in which we do that is we, we do all we can to make the world more pleasant around us. We love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and then we treat our neighbors as we'd like to be treated. We're, we're following the call to, of Scripture to obey that, but it's not based on some fear of divine retribution but more so on the relationship of following Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's living out this new covenant. Now, I'd like you to think it this way, if I can go back to the story of the couple from Holland in the 1840s. Remember that Van Gorkum is Protestant, Van Afferden is Roman Catholic. Their marriage is not supposed to take place, and yet, despite the Dutch citizens around them pushing against it, their marriage survives the culture of pilarization. See, those around wondered, what's going to happen when these people get older and they die? Where will they get buried? Dutch pillarization said that we, Roman Catholics and Protestants, have their own schools, have their own newspapers, have their own officials, and even if they get buried in a town cemetery, they can't be buried together. There's literally a wall that goes down the center of the cemetery, Roman Catholic, Protestant. So what were they going to do when they died? They couldn't be buried together, right? Van Gorkum, the colonel, he died in 1880. He was buried in the Protestant section of the local cemetery. Van Afferden said, though, when she was alive, she said, when I die, I don't want to be buried with my family, my Roman Catholic family. I want to be buried next to my husband. They said, you can't do that. So she made her wishes very clear and kind of fooled the system in some way, she could say. Here's the solution. Look at where she was buried. She was buried right up against the wall. And guess who's on the other side? Here's a picture of her husband's gravesite. What's interesting to me is you've got the hands over the divider, right? See those hands there? While they may be separated by the wall, those hands are saying our love goes beyond the pillarization of our community. Why this story? Because it best illustrates the human struggle of us trying to reach for God. The old covenant gave a foreshadow of a better covenant, the scriptures say. 
We are separated from God because of our sin. We can never reach over the wall, divine versus human, holy versus sinful, but Jesus' covenant is, and, and his death is now the way in which we bridge that gap. His, his love, well, you could say the love of that couple displays God's love and demonstrates God's love for us, that God reaches out across the divide and says, I love you. Let's be in communion together. So with that in mind, we're going to have communion together. If you're serving today in either of our room, in either rooms, if you'd go and prepare for that, that'd be helpful. Because um, in thinking about the word covenant, uh, you probably on a regular basis hear this as we celebrate communion each week. See, Scripture tells us that on the night before Jesus died, okay, Remember the story? He's got his disciples around him. They're sitting at a table. They're eating. And halfway through the meal, Jesus takes a piece of bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And his disciples are looking, what's that mean? They don't know he's going to die yet. Then a little more time goes by. The scripture tells us that after supper, after dinner, he held up a cup and that cup would have had wine in it probably was red, like looking like blood. And he says, what did he say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Ah, there's the language that we hear each week, but now it makes sense that by Jesus dying, he's making something new. The old has passed away. There's a new way in which my blood will help you have a relationship with God, will be the way in which your sins are forgiven. And we've heard those words so many times. The old covenant had been broken over and over again by the people in the past, and each year they had to start over with a relationship with God. Each year another animal had to die. It was serious business, but now Jesus is saying, that practice is gone. I'm about to give my blood once and for all. A new covenant is in place. Choose to follow, obey, and don't worry about the pillarization of eternity because the divide between us and God is now gone. Sin is forgiven and God's forgiveness is available to you, to me. The covenantal relationship is reestablished by Jesus' blood and Christ offers forgiveness to all and brings us back to this. God's protection and blessing is over us. God, we're not wandering around anymore. Now, God, we're under his blessing. Let's pray together. Father, you have, uh, you've graced us with the gift of Jesus Christ. And we would have to admit, God, there are times when we don't fully understand it. Not that you graced us, we don't understand that, but we don't even understand all its implications and, Lord, how this was put in play many, many years ago, long before Jesus came. As a matter of fact, God, you told Abraham that his family would bless all nations. Jesus, Lord, comes along as with, in, in Abraham's bloodline. We join that family through his sacrificial death. And now we are given the opportunity in them. We're given the grace of blessing all peoples. We do that because of the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I'm aware that here today there may be some folk who don't yet don't understand all this and they don't yet walk with you in a way that's right or in a way that, well, Lord, all of us need to simply pray this prayer. God, 
forgive us of our sins. We're choosing this day to follow Jesus Christ, to mimic his life, to respond to people how he would respond to people. And Lord, we can only do that because we're in a covenantal relationship with you and you lead us. We obey, yes, Lord, not from some fear of divine retribution, but because you're changing our hearts to be hearts that reflect holiness, hearts that reflect forgiven sins, hearts that reflect, God, your plan for us and for this world. And so as we eat and drink, we do it in remembrance of Jesus saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive them. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.